1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: Hello, welcome to the
3: on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our episode today... It's actually not by me. It's by my colleague, Matt Iglesias, who did a great interview over at The Weeds with Jenny Schutz about something that you all uh, email me wanting to talk about and learn about more housing policy and land policy. I don't know nearly as much about it as Matt, and basically nobody knows as much about it as Jenny Schutz. So I thought
2: this was a great one to share with the audience. If you want more conversations and interviews like this, of course, subscribe to The Weeds, where I'm a co-host. Uh, I've got some interviews planned over there, too, so that'll be exciting. Um, but
3: here, without further ado, are Matt Iglesias and Jenny Shuts. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and in here today I'm here with uh, Jenny Schutz, who is a David Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution. I'm really excited to have her with us. Uh, the number one request I think that I, I got from uh, listeners out there when I asked what what other topics we should try to tackle was you wanted to hear more about housing, wanted to hear more about land use. We've got the ideal person here to help explain all that to us. Um, so, Jenny, let me just let me just start like. Is there a housing crisis in America? It's, it's, I think, taken for granted by some people, but an idea that's unfamiliar to others.
4: Sure. We have at least two separate housing affordability problems, which are not the same thing, but often get lumped in together. Mm -hmm. So first and probably most important, poor families, say the bottom 20% of the income distribution have a difficult time affording even minimum quality housing basically everywhere in the U.S. That's not a housing market problem. It's an income problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it costs money to run an apartment, pay for operating costs, and so forth. And the poorest families just don't earn enough money to cover the costs of operating apartments. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that some regions of the country, particularly the West Coast and big cities on the East Coast, have decided just not to build enough housing to meet demand. And so housing has gotten very expensive in those locations. That's also not a housing market failure, Uh as people like to call it. That's a housing policy failure because that's the outcome of choices that local governments have made.
3: Right. So that's a really interesting distinction, right? So you have on the one hand the problems of low-income families. And the basic problem there is that their income is low. So you struggle – to afford housing for the exact same reason you might struggle to afford, like lunch or, you know, it anything. is.
4: And and in, in, in some part, that's also a policy failure because we have chosen not to make housing assistance an entitlement. Right. So, for instance, anybody who is poor enough to qualify for food stamps and meets the eligibility guidelines can get food stamps. Mm-hmm. That's not contingent on a budget allocation from Congress. But we have a fixed amount of money that we spend on houses, housing assistance for poor families. So public housing or vouchers administered through HUD – there isn't enough to meet all of the people who are income eligible. I think at the moment we're covering about 20% of people who are eligible for housing assistance get it. Some of them get very large per household subsidies, but there are a lot of really poor people who get no assistance to pay for housing at all, and they're the ones who are really stretching to try to make just basic rent.
3: Right. And so, I mean, this is a fairly large group of people that used at the bottom 20%.
4: Yeah, about the bottom 20 to 25% of households um, are—so those are the people who can't afford rent without a subsidy, and of those, about 20% of the households will get some sort of a subsidy. That leaves a lot of people who really can't afford the rent and are basically housing insecure most of the time. Right, and so, I mean, this—so this sounds
3: like a population for whom— Some of the rhetoric that, like, I'm used to hearing from, like, like left-left people, people with red roses in their Twitter avatars and stuff, like, it really applies to them, right? I mean, here, you're talking about a population for whom it is true to say, like, look, like, the housing market, as it exists, does not provide adequate shelter for these families. And, And the question is, right, like, do we treat this as, like, a regular commodity, like, Okay, if you're poor you you can't get a nice television. you can't have an adequate place to live, or do we say housing is in some sense like a, a right like the way like everybody gets to go to school most many people think everybody should get health care, and so should everybody get housing?
4: Yeah, and it's interesting that housing hasn't been included in things like healthcare and food where we do essentially say if you are poor and you can't afford this, the government will subsidize you and it's not contingent on you know budget uh, being available right. for that. A lot of other countries have said, either in their constitution or have written laws saying that housing is a basic human right. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we have to provide minimum quality shelter, whether that's building social housing or giving people more money. The U.S. hasn't chosen to do that. So we don't have a national right to housing. Therefore, it's okay just not to give assistance to some poor families. And
3: so let's explain, how how does entitlement work, right? Because this is like a piece of DC budget jargon that also a lot of people have like wind up having feelings about, but it but it means something specific, right? So food stamps are an entitlement. Section eight housing vouchers are not.
4: That's right. So entitlement programs are things where um, there are rules of eligibility. They may be income based. They may be age based. So for instance, Social Security is an entitlement. Um, Medicare and Medicaid are entitlements um, based on certain characteristics. And everybody who meets those eligibility requirements will get the appropriate amount of subsidy from the government. Right. So it's, governments don't love doing that for budget reasons because then you're committing to paying things out whether you have the revenues for them or not, which right. means you may have to borrow to cover costs. For whatever reason, we have chosen not to put housing in with health care uh, with food stamps, with some with um, disability insurance, uh, you know, social security, etc. Right.
3: So, so a non entitlement program like housing assistance, it's a sort of a two step process. Where first, it's do you qualify? Do you meet the characteristics as an income and a family size to be eligible? But then the second cut is, well, can you actually
4: get it? That's right. And because housing assistance is almost entirely distributed through local authorities, it doesn't go directly from HUD. HUD allocates money to local housing authorities or other local government agencies. So they have an allocation of vouchers that HUD assigns to, say, the New York City Housing Authority or the D.C. Housing Authority, And then those housing authorities are responsible for screening people on eligibility, making sure that people find an apartment that meets the fair market rent guidelines, and leasing up. So the money comes from the federal agency, but local governments also have some discretion in, for instance, how to prioritize. Mm -hmm. So some local governments have said it's really important for, say, families who are currently homeless Mm -hmm. to go to the top of the list and get assistance, whereas somebody who... Is living in an apartment can't quite make the rent, but has a has shelter currently may go farther down on the list. Mm-hmm.
3: But I mean, the basic point here is, if you have a, as most cities do, you just have a list of people who are housing insecure that is much longer than the list of people you can help, and there's no there's no great way to make that decision.
4: Right. I mean, the waiting list for housing assistance in most major cities is years long, and people will st- wait to, in the hopes that they get a voucher at some point. Many of them never do, or by the time they get called up, they're no longer income eligible, or they've moved to another place altogether. Right.
3: So the the good news about this, it it seems to me, is that there's like a pretty straightforward answer, right? I mean, it's like Congress could appropriate more money or could— adopt an entitlement program structure and i mean like doing politics is hard but like like us sitting here being like what what's my proposal going to be like it seems like an easy question
4: it is no the the policy fix for poor people is actually very easy we just need to spend more money on them There are also conversations about whether HUD could spend its existing budget differently. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, public housing is pretty expensive per family served because the government actually has to own and manage and operate public housing. So it's generally cheaper to give people vouchers in the private market. We could change the amount of money per household. So mm-hmm. in some places, you know, the subsidy may be $1,000 a month. If you cap the amount of subsidy per household, you could serve more families tomorrow mm-hmm. just at a smaller level of subsidy. So there there's some technical details about that. But the fundamental issue is just if we spent more money on poor people, we could basically get rid of housing insecurity for everybody who's currently insecure. Well,
3: that's nice.
4: Sure. <laughs> it's, not, it's not coming out of our budget, so why not? <laughs> sure. No. Um
3: but I mean I, I I think that's important because something that uh because I'm because I'm gonna pivot to the other thing. Um and and I have at various times been sort of um as a writer myself and somebody who I, I came into the housing issue talking about something completely different, right? Which is the question of why don't people move to high income metro areas, right? Which was, this was like an, a, I mean, listeners may not remember this because the the macro politics have shifted completely. But in like the mid aughts, a big thing you heard from conservatives back, back when they weren't um, champions of the downtrodden and the forgotten people was, look, like the population growth in red states is so high and like nobody moves to California. And it shows like, you know taxes have failed, and and you know I was interested in that, and I started I started looking like, well, why is it that people leave California? And it turns out, right, it's like it's not that people leave California because it's a horrible place to live. People leave California because it's so expensive, and rich people tend not to leave California because they can afford it, right? So I I started writing about about that, and I have sometimes found myself counter posed by other people to like Matthew Desmond and advocates of making vouchers an entitlement. And then I started to say like, no, 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 like we're, we're just like we're talking about different things, right? Like a poor person in Milwaukee like needs some money, right? But like teachers in California who can't afford to live where they work, you know, I mean, maybe we should pay teachers more, maybe we shouldn't. But like fundamentally, these are like college graduates with real jobs and yet they can't afford home. Right that's like that's the second affordability problem.
4: It is. And and that's a that's a geographically specific issue. Mm-hmm. So places that have decided we're just going to make it difficult to build houses in lots of complicated ways uh, so California is you know, sort of ground zero for the problem. California essentially hasn't built enough homes to keep up with growing population and jobs for about 30 years now. Mm-hmm. And so the end result of that, not surprisingly, is that it's an expensive place to live. Um, you know, it has high, ha- high amenities and lots of great jobs, so people want to move there for the jobs. But both of those two things also make it a more expensive place.
3: Right. And so— I mean, how how widespread is this? Because it, it's it's easy to sort of get confused, right? Because the media is largely in New York. The policy discussion is largely in D.C. Uh, we hear a lot about technology hubs in San Francisco and Seattle. Uh, but obviously, most people don't live in San Francisco or Seattle or D.C. or New York.
4: Most people don't. But the cities that have the worst affordability are also big cities. Right. So, you know, it, 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 it does include the largest cities in the country. So N- New York... LA, San Francisco, Seattle, DC. I mean these are places where a lot of people live and and places with really productive companies and they're also places we want people to move to.
3: Right. So it's a it's it's sort of a big deal even though it's also sort of a niche issue.
4: It is. I mean it, it's geographically focused but in areas with high population in areas that are very productive. You know, if you believe Enrico Moretti's estimates, this has effects on national GDP that more people aren't able to live in these places with really productive companies. And so, now, how do you like? How can you tell
3: that that this is the issue, right? You're you're the real real researcher here, right? So, because I think a lot of people say. I don't know, like Seattle, we've got the most cranes of any city in America, or I see all these condos going up in Soma all the time, or what's there's these super tall buildings around Central Park West, like they're, the, the mayors are in the pockets of the developers, like what, what are you talking about?
4: So there there is a lot of development at the moment in certain pockets, but that's mm-hmm. part of the problem. So if you take, for instance, the DC area, if you walk around downtown DC, yes, there are lots of new apartment and condo buildings going up. There are giant construction sites, there are cranes everywhere. That's happening in a handful of neighborhoods in central D.C. Mm-hmm. There are large swaths of the district that don't build housing. Um, so, for instance, all of Upper Northwest, Ward 3, basically hasn't been building housing for you know 20 years or so. They tear down existing single families and replace them with bigger, more expensive single mm-hmm. families. But they're not adding net new housing units. Mm-hmm. If you go farther out from the district... Uh, when we get into the inner ring suburbs, you know, Arlington built a bunch of apartments around the metro stations in the '90s and early 2000s. But most of Arlington hasn't had new housing. You know, North Arlington, which is also the expensive part,
0: mm-hmm.
4: doesn't build new houses or apartments at all. Fairfax and Montgomery County are the two biggest jurisdictions in the metro area. They're building substantially less housing now than they were 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're building less overall. There's a small pockets in the core, and then we're building a ton of houses, single-family homes and townhouses out in Loudoun and Spotsylvania and Frederick on the exurbs. Right. But most of the places in between, I mean, if you look just map where development happens, it's really concentrated, and the vast majority of land in productive metros just doesn't build new housing.
3: Right. So this is the kind of thing where it's like you have to really look at the – Data, right? Because you can go to cities and sort of spot cranes, but most people, like in every city, most people don't live in giant buildings, right? That's right. And every city has like some place where they're like, okay, you can build new houses here, right? But the the essential problem is that in the cities, in in the parts of the country where not enough housing is being built. It's that most of the land is just sort of like banal, blah, single-family homes, and nothing is built there.
4: Right. And a lot of the neighborhoods that got built as single-family in, say, the 50s through the 70s, we built at relatively low densities Mm -hmm. because at that point, land wasn't that valuable. And so it was fine to build a bunch of single-family homes. People commuted by car. That land has now gotten a lot more valuable, and really we should be redeveloping it as, say, four- to six-story apartment Mm -hmm. and condo buildings, but you can't do that. Right. So it's very hard to tear down stuff that's there and build it at a higher density to increase the total number of housing units.
3: So you did this great study specifically of of D.C. that I think really showed this, right? Because I think the image that a lot of people— have in their mind of, of DC to explain it to, you know, listeners who who aren't here, right? It's like there's a there's a downtown DC, there's like a fancy part of town west of Rock Creek Park. Then there's uh, sort of very low-income areas east of the Anacostia River. And there's this kind of big middle, right? And there's a lot of uh, discussion of gentrification in areas in, in the middle. Like where, where I live in, in Logan Circle and, and Shaw, we have in fact had a lot of new buildings go up there and people sort of focus on that. They say, okay, there's like new buildings coming up, but also rents keep going up and also uh, a lot of working class African-American families have been leaving and people don't talk about what's going on in the sort of longest settled, most affluent area.
4: Exactly. And th- that that's strategic on the part of people who live in the affluent areas right. as long as they sort of push back, well, you know, we don't want gentrification, so we should shut down on development everywhere. So it's to protect poor people. But what it actually does is protect rich people who bought houses 30 years ago and are sitting on very valuable land and then limiting development for everybody else.
3: Right. So you get this this sort of scramble of debate like on the gentrification frontier, right? It's like, what should we build or not in like the one place where we are allowed to build? And then Cleveland Park, Georgetown, AU Park, there's a lot of park in the neighborhood name is probably a good sign that no houses are built there. Exactly. And so an interesting thing you showed was that there actually is a lot of residential investment. In these neighborhoods,
4: there is um, people spend a lot of money fixing up their houses in places where you know the housing in DC is pretty old. Um, right, a lot of it is pre World War II, so people spend money improving their homes. So they you know put in energy efficient windows and doors, and they replace the roof. And there's actually a fair amount of expansion of the structures. So people who are in say smaller older single family homes will add on something to the back or to the side. One of the homes in my neighborhood, they literally lifted off the roof and they're putting. An entire new second story on, sort of increasing the floor plate by a third. So there's a lot of this going on where people are buying existing homes and lots, either tearing down the house and replacing it with a bigger house, or expanding and improving the house that's there. Of course, that what that does is make the new house more expensive than the old one, mm-hmm. without increasing the number of people who can live in the neighborhood.
3: Right. I mean, I think that's important for everyone to to understand, right? And I, I live in a in a in a gentrifying neighborhood, not in a new house, in a very old house. But what my wife and I because we i mean we wanted to live in the neighborhood we wanted to have a nice house we're pretty doing doing okay for ourselves we we had some money to spend and there like wasn't a giant luxury new condo for us to move into and accommodate our family so we bought a crappy old house and we renovated it right and like you can't you can't stop people from investing Like people who have money are going to spend money on getting a house that they like.
4: That's right. And housing prices are always going to be driven essentially by people at the top end of the income distribution. So the richest people in the city are going to buy the nicest houses, which may be the newest and biggest and shiniest. Mm -hmm. Or it just may be they're buying land in the neighborhoods with really high amenities. Right. Right. So especially families with kids who have the money will buy into the best school district they can buy into. Into, and if the house is crappy, they can tear it down and replace it. That's the easy part. It's buying access to the school district or you know, buying access to a metro station or good restaurants, whatever the amenity is. But people are buying the land that has amenities they like, and then they fix the housing stock to match that. Mm-hmm. But if you let rich people essentially – if they can only buy into certain neighborhoods, then everybody else sort of has to shift down a little bit if you built more houses in sort of existing in existing high income neighborhoods right. then more people who'd like to be in those high amenity areas could live there and then we wouldn't put as much pressure on the transitional neighborhoods the gentrifying neighborhoods right.
3: and it's also possible that the i mean cuz there's a certain disamenity value to more people right i mean like, so so like one of the reasons people will block this new development is they'll say like well wow, okay, now there's going to be more traffic, there's going to be more noise, whatever, whatever, which, you know, I mean, is, is understandable on one level. But on another level, it could be a, a balancing factor, right? Like on the one hand, more people could move into the rich single-family neighborhood if you put more apartment buildings there. So there's less pressure in the, the gentrification frontier. But then on the other hand, like you actually level out the neighborhoods to an
4: extent. You do. And part of this is that, you know, our local governments work in silos like the federal government. So, uh-huh. you know, the city agencies that are in charge of zoning and deciding where you can build new housing and how expensive it is to build there aren't the same people who are deciding where we do transportation investments. Mm-hmm. So, you know, DC is a perfect example. We should be building four to six-story condos all over Ward 3, you know, a bunch more in Georgetown and Capitol Hill. And at the same time that we do that, we should be running bus rapid transit down all of the major avenues so that people don't have to have cars and you don't have to have more traffic. So you do want to do the infrastructure investment along with more housing so it doesn't just become a congestion problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you think about the flip side, what we've done instead is build most of our new housing way out in the exurbs. Mm -hmm. And so then you've got people who are driving in from, you know, 50 miles away That winds up being more traffic too. So if we built the housing in places that are close to jobs where we already have some transportation infrastructure, you could actually make the traffic impacts much less than what we're currently doing, which is just punting.
3: And and then there's the fact that, I mean, I think people don't always understand this, but like certain infrastructural modes, you might need investment one way or the other, but investments can work in certain places and not others, right? Like there, there are parts of... San Francisco, parts of Los Angeles, parts of D.C., parts of every major city where if you built a rapid transit line and then you had more housing there, people would take it and it would function well. Whereas far exurbs, that like the geometry doesn't work, right? Like you could run a train line there, but it wouldn't take people anyplace useful. It's like you have to be close to the core of the network, For it to have any value.
4: Yeah. And a lot of cities, not just the sort of big expensive cities, but a lot of cities have built light rail systems that connects the airport to downtown, and mm-hmm. maybe they have a couple of rails. But the housing density isn't uh, high enough near the rail that people really ride it to sure. get to work. So it's sort of, we've spent a lot of money building infrastructure that doesn't get used that much without allowing the housing development that would make it a more worthwhile investment.
3: Yeah, and I mean, I mean we were just chatting about this, this offline in the in the case of Los Angeles, which, I mean, is obviously, this is different. For, I mean, some smaller cities have done these, like, rinky dink trams and light rails, L.A. has built like what's a actually a substantial, I think a lot of people don't know this, East Coast people about Los Angeles, but like they have a big subway system now. They do. And um, nobody rides
4: it. They've, sp- they've spent more than $10 billion building 80 stations and the ridership levels are really low and they've actually been declining the last few years.
3: And And this is where, right, I mean, this is the really case that like brings it all together, right? Because like L.A. now has a lot of mass transit but not a lot of people ride it. But the traffic is terrible and everybody complains about it constantly. And a lot of people live in Los Angeles, but they don't really live like by the train stations. And that's because of these land use policies.
4: Yeah. I mean, L.A. is a really interesting example because they fought very hard against putting in stations in places that would be well served. Mm -hmm. So the entire west side of L.A., which is, you know, the richer side of the city, pushed back against having any kind of subway or light rail going in because they didn't want to make it accessible to Mm -hmm. poor people. Um, You know, they've now sort of lost that battle. So the the light rail runs all the way to Santa Monica. But those were neighborhoods where – that ha- actually had a lot of jobs. The west right. side of L.A. has some really big employment centers. Right. You know, ideally you would have built something downtown to, to the west side right down the Wilshire Corridor, which has a really high density of both people and jobs. Mm-hmm. And that would have been – you know, that would have helped traffic a lot to connect those two job sure. centers. But only putting one of those attached, everybody who lives in the west side and works downtown can't ride the rail because Mm -hmm. it's not close to their neighborhood. People who live on the east side but work on the west side also can't take rail because it doesn't get them all the way to their
0: jobs. Right. So you have to connect both of those for it to make sense.
2: borough.com slash box.
3: Okay, so these are two sort of two, two distinct housing crises we've talked about, right? Like a a low-income problem that is fundamentally based on incomes and it's fundamentally – on a policy level, the question is like do we think people have a right to housing the way at least Left of center people think they have a right to food and medical care. And I guess everybody thinks people have a right to education and and so housing, question mark, but simple policy fix. A sort of a middle class affordability crisis, more selective and really driven by a complicated set of, of land use concerns. So how do these intersect, right? So we've had like a, a proposal from Senator Harris to... Basically, like, give people much more generous housing subsidies. But she's coming from California and presumably has, like, California on her mind.
4: Yeah. I mean, California's got a lot of poor people Uh and it's got a lot of middle income people who can't afford the basic house. Right. Um, So I, I can understand why if you come from California, your answer is to just throw more money at it. I think there are two problems with just giving blanket subsidies to people up to fairly high incomes one is that until we've covered low-income households everywhere it seems a little unfair to be subsidizing somebody making 80 or hundred thousand dollars a year in the bay area when their family's earning fifteen thousand dollars a year in Cleveland who get no assistance but well, this is
3: because so so the way she structured it right your eligibility is based on the relative affordability of housing where you are. So I might earn more money than you, but I get a bigger subsidy because I'm in Boston and you're in Chicago. So because the Boston area's housing policy is bad, Boston area residents get a more generous subsidy.
4: Exactly. Yeah. So the two things that most economists don't like about that are, one, it's not super efficient to be subsidi- spending more money <laughs> sure. subsidizing people in expensive places, you know, both for fairness. Does this really make sense? And also. If you do that, you're kind of letting these local governments off the hook for their bad policy choices. Right. So, you know, we'd like to hold the cities accountable and make them change their land use, build more housing. And if we just give people who live there more money, that doesn't change the incentives for the local government. There's also a pretty substantial risk that in expensive places, landlords will just hike up the rent to absorb all of the subsidy, and it doesn't make people that much better off.
3: Right, right. Because this is—we're saying if if the problem is, you know, in— um. I don't know where you know, Indianapolis, right? Some people there are just just poor. But if you give them more money, then either they will just go rent a place and there's no problem. Or if there's a scarcity, people will just build some more apartments someplace. And then because they'll say, oh, this is great. Like people are gonna be able to rent them. But if you go to Portland, where people there's a there's a fixed supply more or less of houses, and you say, okay, we've got more subsidy, that winds up being a subsidy to the landlords who say, oh, fantastic, I can charge higher rent.
4: Exactly. The I mean, the other complicated thing with setting these subsidies based on what percentage of your income you spend on housing, which is how we do most of this, is that people choose to spend an amount on housing based on their preferences for a whole bunch of things. So, you know, for instance, there are some people who really want to be close to work and have a very short commute. They're going to spend more on rent and maybe not own a car and spend less on transportation. They may look like they're sort of more cost burdened on the housing side than somebody who chooses to live far away and have a really long commute. You know, that's, both of those are choices that people are making based on their preferences. It's not obvious that we should necessarily be penalizing people who choose to under-consume housing or spend less on housing right. and reward people who choose to spend more on housing by giving them a subsidy.
3: Right. So, so if it was you, you would establish – it sounds like so, – so more generous assistance to low-income families and ideally with need defined pretty purely in terms of your income and your family size.
4: Yeah. And really, for most poor people, they're not making choices about, I'm going to live close to work and walk and not have a car. I mean, like, by and large, they can't afford to have a car, so they're taking the bus anyway. Their income is pretty limited. I mean, the the bottom 20% of the income distribution is spending on average, about half of their income on rent, which is a lot more than HUD thinks they should. Um, You know, the next 20% is spending about 40% of their income on rent. So housing is such an important thing to consume, and there's a floor on the minimum quality. So certainly the bottom 20%, we could just give them more money and they would spend it on housing because they're spending, you know, way too much on Mm -hmm. housing anyway. Mm
3: -hmm, mm
4: -hmm. So is there anything that you
3: think the federal government should do about the the other problem right i mean if there's a there's like a political question but a simple answer for for low income and then there's a more thorny issue and in the the last couple of years of, of the Obama administration, the Council of Economic Advisors put out this, this report. I thought it was a good report on the problems of excessively constrained housing supply and you know, I came in to talk to them about this and I was like, so what do you think we should do? And they were like, I don't know. I mean I guess that's – that's basically what they said. Was they didn't know.
4: Yeah, the, I mean, the federal government doesn't have a lot of leverage over land use because that's fundamentally a state and local issue. Right. So they just they don't have constitutional authority to go in and change zoning.
0: Sure,
4: um, there are some financial carrots and sticks they can use. We normally try to run all housing stuff through HUD. HUD isn't a great way to fix land use problems. Yeah, but
3: housing's in the name.
4: (laughs) Housing's in the name. The problem is that when HUD gives money directly to local governments, Mm -hmm. not to people, not to poor people through vouchers, but when it gives it to local governments, they're mostly giving it to the biggest places. So they give it to big cities, bigger counties, And relatively speaking, they give it to poorer places. So things like community development block grant is weighted so that poor places get more money. The real problem is not poor cities. The real problem is wealthy suburbs, many of which are pretty small in population. So they don't get money from HUD, which means that HUD can't withhold money to make them change their behavior. Right. So
3: this was Senator Booker's bill, right, tries to address the housing supply issue. But then it tries to use these community development block grants as a lever, and it's it's like a nice idea, it seems to me, but it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Because it like, doesn't. Because he's saying to rich suburbs that don't get much community development block grant money and probably don't care at all.
4: Yeah. And New Jersey is actually one of the states where this would be least effective uh-huh. because New Jersey has a ton of really small villages and townships, yep. all of which control land use. But they're too small to get money from HUD. So the money, um, the CDBG money in New Jersey, goes almost exclusively to counties, which don't have any control over land use at all. And then they sort of allocate it to towns within their borders. So you know, HUD gives money to Newark, which is not the problem, and then it gives it to wealthy counties and all of, or to the to the counties that don't control land use. And the suburbs basically don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. And you know, the wealthier places, if you said we're going to hold back your CDBG funds unless you change your zoning, would say, keep the CDBG. We'd rather have our exclusionary zoning. And, you know, particularly since HUD's money is really an incentive to let more poor people live there.
3: Right, right. Exactly. It's like, unless you let more people live here, we're going to take away a very small amount of money, whose purpose is to let more poor people live here, yeah. which you don't want anyway.
4: Right. That that's a really easy decision for rich suburbs. They're just going to walk away.
3: Right. So so what so what does work?
4: Well, if we wanted to use federal pots of money, it's yeah. actually better to look at transportation, mm-hmm. um, because the federal government gives road money to most states and localities, yep. if not directly. Um, you know, All of the money that we've spent building these light rail systems and subways, that mm-hmm. all has some federal grant. We should have attached strings when we gave it, mm-hmm. um, but some places still get some operating subsidies, like LA that's still building new stations is mm-hmm. getting some federal money. You could require places to get federal transportation dollars to do better zoning, especially around transportation, which they should be doing anyway. Right. The other thing that the federal government hasn't tried and probably won't anytime soon but could... You could imagine HUD and EPA and Department of Transportation setting out some guidelines for what good land use policy looks like, Mm -hmm. both in terms of building more housing near jobs and transportation, building more housing and at higher density in places where land is really valuable so you Mm -hmm. have lots of amenities. Those are just good principles of land use, and mm-hmm. having that spelled out for states and local governments to look to would be helpful. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually give them an idea of this is what good land use looks like, and this is what bad land use looks like. Yeah. So even before you get around to attaching money, just setting some standards and establishing them and explaining why this is something we should be aiming towards mm-hmm, would be mm-hmm. helpful.
3: Yeah, and I mean, this is an, you mentioned EPA in this mix, and, and I'm not sure people always always know this but it's like if you if you look at the chart of like per capita carbon dioxide emissions um california is really really low uh, because the the weather is nice i think um but like new york is also really low um and the weather in new york is is not that nice but it's because a lot of the population of new york is in new york city and new york city is very dense and so you don't drive as far and also the heating in multifamily units is more efficient and so then There's been this – there's this like new drive from the New York City government to push like greener buildings, right? And that's fine. But I think something a lot of even New Yorkers don't have in their head is that like a generic building in New York is just like a billion times greener than the average house in America. Absolutely. So like to build anything in New York City is a green building.
4: Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, the the two biggest segments of sort of um, damaging emissions are transportation, which is basically people who live far away from work driving in their car by themselves every day. And then the energy used by buildings, single family detached houses need more air conditioning and cooling than apartments that are stacked vertically. So yeah, if we stacked houses on top of one another and put them close to jobs, that would be great for the environment and that would be good for housing affordability and opening up neighborhoods to more people.
3: Right. So like, I mean, I, I grew up in Greenwich Village and people would be horrified to just level the whole thing and replace it with tall apartment buildings. But it would be environmentally like an incredible win yeah. to just stick more people there
4: it's not like we actually have to tear down all of the brownstones in Manhattan. Yeah, I You can I mean... <laughs> predict some, but like, honestly, you know, if Manhattan were building more tall buildings and didn't keep, you know, you have the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side and Greenwich Village and the East Village, you know, you've you got a lot of really low-density housing even in Manhattan. Right. You could easily tear down 25% of that, 30% of that, and replace it with tall buildings. That would be a step in the right direction. But
3: in a minimum, I mean, if if literally just, if the only thing that you cared about, was ecological sustainability. That is what you would do.
4: And we should be building more housing in California because people there don't have to use air conditioning and heating nearly as much. Right, and again, that's the point. Like
3: like any house in California is a greenhouse because the weather's good, right? And even more so, right, if you built an apartment building in California and if you built an apartment building near a train station in California, then it's like total galaxy brain, Um, kind of stuff, but like that that is more important, at least in the short term, than like fussing around about the exact nature of the of the structure.
4: Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, one thing—most I mean, people don't live in new housing, and most people sure. won't live in new housing. So it's also worth thinking about things like retrofitting existing buildings. Yeah, 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 You know, the Northeast has a lot of really old buildings that are pretty energy efficient by modern standards. You know, that's not nearly as expensive as building new stuff. Sure. And so we could spend some more money on that as well. But I mean, it's as to the extent
3: that new things will be built, right, it's like, look— a new house at the margin could be built in the suburbs of Nashville, or it could be built in the west side of Los Angeles. And it's just much greener to build it in Los Angeles. Absolutely. Right? Like, regardless. So speaking of states, um, so so you you had an event uh, recently at, at Brookings with uh, Scott Weiner, who is the author of a, an interesting bill in California, and I think- I think so we were talking about the federal government and it has like relatively weak levers. We're talking about local governments and I think maybe some of the big cities might consider changing land use policies just on the on the merits if they really understood all the kinds of issues but but I mean as you've been emphasizing we have a lot of exclusionary suburbs in America and I think they like they they want to be exclusionary. They do. Which is which is why they're exclusionary. Um so his idea I guess, is the state legislature should tell them they can't be.
4: Yes. And I think states are the right way to go about changing a lot of this, mm-hmm. um, in part because there's sort of a half dozen states that are most of the problem nationally, right. um, California being one of them. So, you know, he's he's essentially proposing to overrule local zoning around transit stations to allow up to a four-story apartment building, which is not that big, but yes. it's taller than what they have now, um, so that local governments that have uh, transit or job-rich neighborhoods have to allow more housing than they are currently. I think that's a step in the right direction. These are still modest increases in density relative to what we might want to be doing. Um, So, you know, he's making the political choice not to push for sort of the full upzoning that we would want in the interest of getting something better done than what we have now.
3: Right. And so this is a very – this started as like a pretty simple to explain bill. It was like four or five stories – half a mile from a train station or a quarter mile from a bus station. uh, Sorry, uh, like a frequently arriving bus. It's now become... Complicated. A little bit (laughs) baroque. Yes. Um, So it has this whole, so it has this like carve out for low-income areas to sort of um, assuage the anti-gentrification activists' concerns. Then it has this like job-rich concept to... Um, I don't know how would you explain that? It's like you can build townhouses in Silicon Valley. Is that the
4: yeah. So local governments now have to allow up to four unit buildings any place where single-family housing is allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, The job-rich carve-out, I think, is important because, for instance, the west side of L.A. fought so hard against getting transit infrastructure to then reward them and say, well, we're not going to upzone you because you don't have transit would be sort of letting them win on that one. Um, And there are a bunch of places that have jobs and you'd want to have higher density housing even if they're not served by bus or or rail transit. I mean, a lot of this, the the evolution of the bill is definitely about the politics and getting people on board. So if you have to have a carve out for low income areas and you have to have some other kinds of carve outs to get people on board, you know, that's what it takes to get it through the legislature. Politics
3: is that, yeah. So this is sort of pending in the state Senate. I think they are, I think, likely to pass in the state Senate and then see what happens going forward. Um, Most people I've talked to think that not necessarily that specifics of this bill which are about doing legislative coalitions but like the state government is the right government to take this question on
4: yeah no i think that's right um in part because the state's own land use they mm-hmm. gave it to local governments but it's theirs and so they can take it back they have right. more legal authority the other thing you know sort of moving outside of overriding local zoning, states have a lot more financial carrots and sticks that they can use over local governments, particularly in places like California. So, for instance, they do a lot of redistribution for K-12 spending. Mm -hmm. Much of the uh, taxes collected from local governments goes to Sacramento. They turn around and redistribute so that poorer cities have more money to spend on on K-12 schools. They could absolutely make education spending contingent on reforming their housing. Mm -hmm. Um, They do a lot of redistribution for uh, roads and transportation, even some for emergency services. So the state government just has a lot more levers that they could push on to get particularly the exclusionary suburbs to play ball.
3: And then I think the other side of this is that state governments to an extent have the incentive to improve, right? They're like one of the things about being an exclusionary suburb, right? If you are uh, Wellesley, Massachusetts, like you're doing great. You know, like the the fact that like overall there's housing scarcity in greater Boston is not really like a problem for you or for the people who live there. If anything, it's a benefit to, to the landowners. And even if in some sense people might be better off, you think, I mean, it's the literal, not in my backyard, right? It's like, sure, I agree. There should be more houses like somewhere, but I would just prefer it to not be here. But then every suburb, feels that way, right?
4: Yeah. And that's especially true for places like greater Boston and New Jersey, where a lot of these suburbs really are small and they're entirely residential. Right. So it's not even like they're giving up, you know, tax base or, you know, it's not like they have employers who have a hard time attracting workers because it's expensive. People live in Wellesley, but other than the college, nobody works there. So they really lose nothing by being exclusionary.
3: And that's the key thing. Whereas, like, if you're at the state government, if you're the governor of Massachusetts, like, You, of course, like you have all these same problems everybody has, but you also might think, okay, look, I got pensions to meet. I've got employers who I would like to attract. I've also just got, I don't know, like an ego, right? Like you you would enjoy saying, like, I presided over this miraculous growth and like everybody came here and our companies were awesome. And that's where you could unleash a lot of benefits right i mean not just the like yes there are specific benefits to people who are suffering from housing scarcity but there's like a real sense in which more housing stock growth in the highest income lowest affordability areas would have sort of boosterish Upsides right? like it would it would solve some problems that that exist in in terms of like job creation, taxes, all, all this other kind of stuff,
4: yeah, absolutely. And the governors of high cost states are aware of this. They know that this is a problem. <laughs> I mean both Charlie Baker um, and Gavin Newsom have been talking about this because they know that they're losing potential workers, potential companies. One other thing that I think is interesting is that some of the big corporate employers in the expensive mm-hmm. places have started getting more involved with the policy and political debate around this. Right. So in uh, in Washington State, you know, Microsoft made a big donation for affordable housing, but they're also saying we're not just going to give money for you guys to build this. We know that part of the problem is there isn't land available. Mm-hmm. We want local governments in the Seattle region to reform their zoning and start building more. Chan Zuckerberg Initiative in California has also gotten involved with this. So the the big employers are interested in making it easier for them to hire and retain workers and not have to deal with the housing shortage.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is what's – something that's interesting to me about this is that I've seen this in Seattle and particularly discussed like sort of narrowly in terms of the impact on homelessness, which, I mean, I don't want to say is not – problem but i mean as as you were saying at the at the very top like the sort of low end issue and the middle income issue are pretty Distinct.
4: They are. I mean, the really expensive cities have seen an increase in family homelessness right. for people who are housing insecure and then get pushed out right, entirely. Right, right. That you know, that's probably a lot of that's in the bottom twenty percent. You know, it may be sort of creeping up a little bit further. So if you're expensive for long enough, then the problem moves higher up the income distribution. Right. right but it course. is essentially still, yeah, give people more money.
3: Well, and and you know, in particular, I mean. I would never discourage anybody from tackling their, like, most acute family homelessness problems by, like, building shelters and and taking care of people. But, like, I feel like it's almost backwards, right? You would have more public resources in Washington state to dedicate to social services for the really needy if you just, like, had some more apartments for like just, just market rate houses for people to live.
4: Sure. There would be fewer people who really need subsidies if housing were just less expensive overall. And, you know, the issue with homelessness- And a larger tax And base. a larger tax base, yeah. So if more people were there, I mean, the-, the it's hard to translate that exactly into tax revenues mm-hmm. because increasing the number of people or the number of apartments, you may or may not get more revenues, if, you know, depending sure. what they do with the property <laughs> tax rates. I mean, this, so this is also, you know, one of California's many, many problems is they're not collecting property taxes on a lot of expensive land sure. because of Prop 13.
3: Yes. I mean, there's like specific sort of micro issues. But it's – there's – I often find in progressive circles, it's posed as like a like a zero-sum – choice, right? Like, are we going to work on increasing the amount of market rate housing, or are we going to try to do more like social assistance for the neediest? But it's precisely because market rate housing would primarily attract uh, sort of a net more affluent people that it expands your ability to provide social services. Like at least- at least like in, in say like California that like because California collects an income tax, right so if just like more if if more affluent people could come to California without literally physically displacing somebody else from house, that makes it easier to. Give low-income people whatever.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Having more people, having more profitable companies (laughs) increases the tax base, you know, more rich people spending on things or spending on tax on sales tax dollars. So yeah, that's definitely where you get the revenues. The other thing is you can't you can't build homeless shelters in a place that doesn't allow you to build apartment buildings. It's actually harder to build homeless shelters or low-income housing than just standard apartments. Um, So in some sense, you have to deal with the land use issue in order to provide. Homeless assistance as well.
3: Right. So so to build public housing for nonprofits, to build, you know, uh, apartments that they are targeting at a, a Section 8 constituency, to build homeless shelters, to do any of this stuff, you need to – I don't want to say need to, but it's much easier if you change the land use so that more stuff can be built by right. That's how you can build. Exactly. You know, like, quote-unquote, affordable housing and all this other stuff, right?
4: right. Yeah. So the, the people who are, you know, the, the public housing in my backyard, the Fimbys, I don't know where you think you're going to build public housing as long as you aren't allowed to build apartment buildings.
3: Right, exactly. So to have a world in which, whether it's the government, a nonprofit, whatever, can create subsidized housing in more places, you have to make it legal to create housing exactly. anywhere at all.
1: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
4: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Last
3: but by no means least, what do you think about rent control sort of coming back?
4: I mean, as a card-carrying economist, I don't love rent control. Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty blunt instrument that doesn't solve the underlying problem. Mm-hmm. I can understand politically why there's demand for it because mm-hmm. it's a short-term fix. So even right. if we start ramping up housing production, it's going to take years for mm-hmm. that to really make a dent in price levels. Um, Rent control is something that can go into effect soon. Um, And for people who get the rent-controlled apartments, that's very nice. It's equivalent to getting a big subsidy. You know, the problem is in all of the cities that have rent control, most poor people don't live in rent-controlled apartments. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, some of the people who live in rent-controlled apartments aren't poor because it's not a means-tested program. So it's a really inefficient allocation of resources Rent control that's in effect for some period of time winds up discouraging more housing supply. Mm -hmm. So landlords are tempted to turn their rental apartments into condos or they renovate them to get them out from under the rent controls. So this winds up exacerbating the underlying problem, not enough housing. I you know it doesn't cost the government any money so yes. things like rent control and inclusionary zoning are really attractive to local governments but they're not fundamentally going to fix the problem
3: but so one thing that's interesting to me is when when I was a student and you know I was I was learning economics um you know economics professors love these little like Oh, you think this is going to be a good idea, because and it's going to help people, but like because of economics, like actually it hurts the people who are trying to help. And so they love rent control as an example because rent control it it's supposed to alleviate the cost burden of housing, but actually it makes it worse because it reduces the supply of rental housing. And you know, I I wrote that down, and I can I can answer the question correctly on a, on a problem set. But the flip side is that. If you're talking about an environment in which there actually isn't new housing in response to scarcity, then rent control doesn't have that perverse effect.
4: It still has perverse effects. So even if you're not building a lot of new housing, mm-hmm. rent control does wind up getting housing taken out of supply mm-hmm. that's already there. So um, there's a nice paper um, by some economists at Stanford that looked at the San Francisco program. And what they see, for instance, is a lot of these condo conversions mm-hmm. because an apartment building may be subject to rent control, but a condo that's individually owned is not. Right. Um, you know, In places like Boston and Cambridge that had rent control for a long time, there's massive underinvestment in the stock. So apartment buildings deteriorate faster mm-hmm. if you can't pass along the maintenance and upgrades, and then those units eventually get to the point where they're no longer habitable and get taken off. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. even if you're not building new housing without rent control, imposing rent control could wind up reducing the number of units that are available already.
3: Right. And, and then I think, you know, fundamentally, you create a allocation issue, right? When you just don't have enough houses, then everything becomes about Okay, well, who gets the houses? Yeah, right.
4: And pretty much all of affordable housing policy at this point in the U.S. is a lottery. So whether it's a rent-controlled unit in New York or San Francisco, whether it's an inclusionary unit um, that's built in the cities that have adopted IZ, whether it's a voucher, there are far more people who are poor than there are these affordable units available. And so almost every single program has some sort of a wait list, and either has an actual lottery where they choose Mm -hmm. you for inclusionary units, or it's effectively a lottery. You wind up finding. a rent-controlled unit that's available that you can lease up or you can't.
3: Right. And I, I would also, I, I would always encourage people, skeptics, to, you know, go look up uh, National Income Housing Coalition. Uh, some other people put out maps and they're showing where people, you know, how many people face housing cost burdens in the city or they have some different ways to measure it. Um, I, I defy you to find a map like that and then say that, okay, well, this city has doing really well on this score because they have successfully like regulated themselves, yeah, out of cost burden problems, right? Like, yeah,
4: I mean, the cities that have active rent control pro- programs are all places that have been expensive for a long time, and that's why they have rent control, right. but yeah, it, it's hard to argue that because New York has had rent control that they have somehow fixed the problem of affordability,
3: right? Right, I mean, and and it, it doesn't th- the closest thing that we have to like housing affordability success stories come from lightly regulated areas, not from places that have like really put the screws to the landlords, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. The the Texas cities are doing much better on standard affordability for at least middle income families. Right.
3: The flip side of that is that the politics of Texas is such that the politicians there are disinclined to subsidize away the remaining problem for low income people. But if they wanted to, like it would work.
4: Right. Yeah, no, they've got enough just basic apartments that are available and they have higher vacancy rates. So you've got places you could put people with vouchers. A lot of the rent levels are such that vouchers work there. Right. It costs a lot less per person. Right, and then
3: this, I mean, this becomes an interesting question when you flip back to the, to the federal government, right, where it's the, the kind of rental assistance expansion that you described before are the places that are least likely to send people to the Senate who would advocate for a program like that, right? Whereas then the people from the blue states are more – they're more open to the idea of the federal government should spend a lot of money on subsidized housing. But then they want to make – I mean for understandable reasons, if you're representing California, you want a program to send money to California, which leads to – perhaps some questionable program design choices
4: yeah i think that's right i mean just at the federal level it's really hard to write a coherent national housing policy because Mm -hmm. the markets are so different locally so you know elizabeth warren's bill sort of goes through a lot of hoops to try to define market conditions so you don't give big subsidies to places that are limiting development etc but it's it's just hard to write rules that aren't going to be unfair to some locations right right
3: right so it's 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 just hard it is that's sad
4: If it were easy, we would have fixed it.
3: (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Okay. That's great. Before I let you go, I just... What 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 should I really have asked you?
4: So the only thing we didn't talk about is home ownership. Oh um, yeah, yeah, home ownership. Yeah, um, and so my my basic take on that is that we have relied on home essentially for all wealth building and savings in this right. country, um, which is maybe not fair um, uh-huh. to people who aren't homeowners. But also it starts to look kind of questionable as home rates continue to decline, especially right. for younger households. Um, so I think both for the benefit of people who become homeowners later in life. And for homeowners who are on pretty thin margins, Mm -hmm. it would be really helpful to have some sort of wealth-building policy that's not tied to homeownership. Right. Does this reliance
3: on homeownership as wealth-building, does that feed back into – The problems we've been talking about this whole time?
4: Because if all of your savings are bound up in the house that you sit on, then you're really worried about anything that diminishes your property value. So, you know, the homeowners who bought their house 30 years ago and are sitting on a ton of land wealth Mm -hmm. don't want anything built nearby. And so they vote for these things that limit new growth.
3: Right. And and so people – I mean because one – One thing here is just, well, people have an investment and they want it to do well. But then the other thing is that for middle class people in particular, they have a very – tend to have a very undiversified wealth stock, right? So it's like the house that you live in is not just valuable but it's like a huge share of your overall savings. And that makes people risk averse. I mean, like with good reason, it makes people risk averse.
4: It does. Although the uh, the less risky retirement strategy would be not to have all of your assets tied up in the right. house that you live in. Right. As we saw in the Great Recession, that turns out not to be a great wealth building strategy if there's, you know, some national catastrophe that you can't control or right. foresee.
3: But it was like, if you imagine, I mean, this would be crazy, but like, say like nobody owned their house or or the only people owned their houses were like, you know, in, in very rural areas, right, where it's it's unique, you're a farmer, you own all the structures, fine. But, like, all urban and suburban housing was rented from, like, 12 national housing conglomerates, and then people all saved their money in, like, 401K plans or, you know. So, yeah. Most of us would be much better
4: off under that circumstance. Right. But
3: not only would we be much better off, but when we thought about national housing policy, we would be saying to ourselves— okay, as a consumer of housing, what will make it affordable? And as a like shareholder in just like stocks, like like what would be good for the national economy? Right, right, and, and in that case, right, it's it's both. Like, like what would be good for housing consumers, and what would be good for generic diversified shareholders would be to build buildings in on expensive land.
4: Right, and to build housing in the cities that have productive companies where people want to work and want to live, and so forth.
3: Right, and and I mean, it would be good for the construction company, right? So it's it's like a it's like a win, right? But but we. I don't want to say nobody has a portfolio like that, but like the typical middle-class person is not invested
4: that way. That's right. And part of this is because we really haven't, we haven't figured out ways to recreate things like the forced savings mechanism of mm-hmm. homeownership. So it's hard to get people to save money. But if they're paying their mortgage every month and they do it automatically, um, you know, they can actually build up something. We've heavily subsidized homeownership through tax policy, which doesn't really cause people to become homeowners. Mm-hmm. But it causes them to buy more expensive houses and take on more debt. Right, um, and, and then the debt is subsidized. And then the debt is subsidized. Exactly.
3: So like if you say, right – to the bank. It's like, no, I'd, I'd rather have a, an equally cheap loan to go buy something else. They're like, well, it's too bad.
4: Yeah. Right. And we've, I mean, it, I think it's particularly acute because we've moved away from a world of um, defined benefit pension plans mm-hmm. and people turn out to be pretty bad at managing their stock portfolios. So even though people have 401ks, to a certain extent, they're making investment decisions about that. That seems to them riskier, and they may make poorer decisions with that than, you know, buying a house where they feel like at least it's a tangible asset.
3: So, okay, so really all we need to solve sort of housing policy is uh, change the whole political incentives, and to do that, we just change... Totally the whole basic financial underpinning. To-
4: totally rewrite the national tax code. Yeah, yeah. that sounds great. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Let states take over all land use decisions. I mean, these are small changes.
3: Mm-hmm. So okay, I well, I think I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, at the end of the day, all the big issues are all connected to each other. If you take anything away from the weeds, that should be that. Um, So thank you so much, uh, Jenny Schutz, for for being on here. Thanks, of course, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Uh, Thanks to uh, all the listeners out there. We're uh, hoping to do more interviews like this with with more experts on things, uh, take on all the big topics. Uh, I would love to hear uh, in the Facebook group or in my email uh, what other stuff you're interested in. And uh, the weeds will be back on Tuesday.